0: How long is this, by the way? Um, It's about 30, 45 minutes. Okay. 25, 30. It all depends on how
1: verbose our guests are. <laughs> okay, plan on, plan on about uh, two and a half hours. <laughs> I hope you got this. Did you get this recorded? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can probably recognize by the music that it is Theology on Mission podcast, straight from the bowels of Northern Seminary live in the library. It's where theology meets mission, the questions of engaging our culture for Christ and his kingdom.
2: How about that for an intro, Mike Moore? Nailed it. You're getting really good at that intro. On a
1: scale from 1 to 10.
2: On a scale of 1 to 10. Yeah, 10 you're able the to read incredible. you're able to read that piece of paper in front of you really well. That has the- Did you have
1: to tell the whole world that I read it?
2: (laughs) We'd give you a three here. We're not suffering from
0: great inflation (laughs) yet. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that other voice
1: that uh, you're hearing uh, is Gerald Sitzer, the the honorable Dr. Reverend Gerald Sitzer from Whitworth University. And he is not supposed to be talking now. We gave him instructions. Don't talk (laughs) until the intro is over. And what happened, Mike Moore? He, he did a great job. He did a great job. He made it much more interesting. So as the music uh, slowly quiets down, uh, we want to introduce to you our guest on today's Theology and Mission podcast. It is Professor Gerald Sitzer. He sits at, well, actually, you're uh, you're called the Senior Fellow of Office of Church Engagement, but you're also a professor of history. Of Christianity at Whitworth University. Do I have that right? Can I call you Jerry? You can call me Jerry and you have it right. All right. And so welcome to our podcast. You know, uh, you have come out with a book from Brazos Press, Resilient Faith, and listen to this tagline, everybody, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World. That tagline caught my eye. How about you, Mike? Yes, it did. Uh, What about it did, uh, did you like about
2: it? Well, anytime I see Third Way, I'm I'm interested uh but as uh, Jerry describes an in intro it's m- maybe not the third way that a lot of people think about uh okay, uh actually, I read the same intro, and I thought it was very similar to the third way,
1: okay, at least the way I think about
2: it well w- we can maybe have Jerry explain it a little more, but as he writes, some people think about the third way as being a middle way, but oh
1: oh 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 you said the, the bad word <laughs> middle. <laughs> This is not a compromised way at all, is it? Uh, Jerry, we turn the podcast over to you. What prompted you uh, to write Resilient Faith? What, what, you know, Normally, when somebody writes a book like this, and it is a great book, we highly recommend it, uh, there must be a driving force behind what got you to write this book. Can
0: you explain what it was? Yeah, actually, there are two. A long time ago, I read uh, the document in which the phrase third race or third way uh, first appears. It was written around the year 140. Uh, we don't know the author, he's anonymous. We do know that the recipient of the letter, uh, Diognetus was a Roman court official and typical for second and third century, uh, Christian intellectuals were writing to Roman officials to try to explain and defend uh, Christianity that they were called apologists. This is really the first apologetic writing we have. It's short and it's elegant. It's a beautiful piece of writing. And in this particular document, uh, the author mentions third race or third way as a phrase that the Roman official would have understood. And behind it is the assumption that uh, Rome was so taken by the uniqueness of the Christian movement. It didn't fit any of their cultural categories. And so they called it a third race or a third way. I'll get back to the first two in a minute. Uh, The other thing though, was teaching history of Christianity to my students. You know, I, I'm a Reformation guy. I came up, I, I I was born and raised in the Reformed tradition, and I call myself Reformed and Evangelical. And so when I first started teaching the history of Christianity, I taught it like it was taught to me, basically as a history of arguments about correct doctrine, uh, beginning with the heresies in the third and fourth century, and then on through the Uh, medieval period, then, of course, the Reformation and evangelical awakenings and all all the rest. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was really being taught a kind of Christendom view of the history of Christianity. Uh, But in the last 10 years or so, my students have been asking a different set of questions, and they became much more interested in the early Christian movement, how this small movement that was born in Jerusalem and spread quickly to the Mediterranean world Uh, was so successful um, and flourished against all odds for some 250-plus years. And why was it, I thought, are they more intrigued by that movement than they were by, say, the Middle Ages or even the Reformation? And uh, so those two things in combination kind of sent me back to the sources And I did a lot of studying, and eventually um, it led to the book you have uh, before you. But it really grew out of conversation and teaching in churches and, of course, my students here at Whitworth.
1: Great, great. Uh, You know, there's a significant overlap. I mean, at least this is the way I I read the book significant overlap between some of the things you're doing and some of the things I've been doing in my own academic work. And of course, some of the things you think about and do all the time, Mike Moore, um, we come out of a kind of an Anabaptist, uh, approach to theology, church, and culture. Yeah. Uh, you're coming out of a history of Christianity understanding of why Christianity turned out this way. And one of the things you say uh, is that there is something to be learned from this first early church movement in pre-Christendom, really, uh, with where we're at now in post-Christendom. So I just, I just have a few queries here because we're, we're all interested in how to engage in a post-Christendom even to some extent secularized or post-Christianized culture and how to engage it for Christ. But before we get to that question, what is the similarities between pre-Christendom Christianity and post-Christendom Christianity? And what are the dissimilarities between pre-Christendom and post-Christendom Christianity?
0: Well, the similarity is that there is a definite uh, lack of cultural privilege and power. Uh, Christians feel like they're kind of on the outside for centuries, you know, Christianity was um, had a kind of symbiotic relationship with both uh, state and culture. And um, so uh, Christian institutions produced much, most of the leading in, uh, intellectuals, and uh, they enjoyed a lot of privileges from the culture, whether they were state-established or, in the case of the United States, were not. Um, Christianity was kind of the presiding religion of the empire, so to speak, and that has changed dramatically in the last, I'd say, 50 years. We saw it first of all in higher education, but then it began to spill over into other areas of uh, cultural life, especially on the coast—Seattle, Portland, San Francisco—on the East Coast as well. Maybe pockets in the middle uh, Midwest. And that was true in the early Christian period, even more so than it's true for us today. So I think we can learn a lot sitting at the feet of these early Christians as they figured out how to negotiate life in the Greco-Roman world, if not under opposition, certainly under suspicion. But there are some big differences. They were defining their Christian faith back then because they were starting from scratch. Uh, The Greco-Roman world had no preconceived ideas about Christianity. Uh, We're coming uh, at the tail end of a long period of Christian dominance in Western culture. So we're dealing with a different set of problems. Nominalism, for example, uh, over-identification with a particular political party could be to the left or to the right. Um, uh, a, A deep division or many, many divisions in the church. So we do have a different set of problems, but I still think we can sit at the feet of these early Christians. I think the relevance of the family arguments of Christianity that we've been dealing with for so many centuries is simply um, uh, diminished a great deal. I think we've got bigger problems than how Reformed and Lutheran or Pentecostal don't agree with each other. Uh, So I would advocate we go back to a more basic or mere Christianity, and then learn how to engage the culture, assuming that what I call three-legged stool—the the 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 very essential nature of the Christian worldview and what it says about humanity's problem and about redemption.
2: Yeah, Yeah. Can can you um, I'm I'm just jumping off of what you said about mere Christianity there. Can you unpack that a little more? Like, what would that look like for? some of these local churches or even denominations to, yeah. to go back to a mere Christianity?
0: Well, I mean, I think they can uh, be faithful to the uh, distinctives of their own particular tradition. It's a matter of proportionality. So they can practice believer baptism or they can practice infant baptism. I think you can make a pretty good argument both ways, but it's not going to be the hill they're going to die on anymore. I think the hill we die on is a kind of essential Christian worldview, creation, fall, redemption. uh, uh, The grand story of how God has got involved with the human uh, uh, humanity, uh, the coming of Jesus into the world, his life and teachings and sacrificial death and resurrection, and then cutting church loose in the power of the Holy Spirit to spread that message and to live the way of Jesus in the world. I mean, that to me is essential Christianity. Uh, We all believe in the Apostles' Creed. Even non-credo groups believe in the Apostles' Creed. They just don't say it. And I think that's been the essential nature of the Christian faith that's tied it together really since uh, the apostolic period and certainly the early second century when they began to spell that out in a little bit more detail.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you make a big point about... uh jesus being the center and the revealing of a new understanding of the way god is and this kind of uh disrupted or or just went beyond any ways of thinking or understanding either in the roman way or, or for that matter the jewish way and i'm thinking today about churches today and um like okay so when i hear let's let's say i'm listening to you say this i'm going of course we believe in jesus of course jesus is the center of our lives of course he reveals who god is uh but somehow our christianities our Christendom Christianities have either accommodated uh so much to a culture or have become so defensive and uh, argumentative in a culture um that, that those words don't seem to make any difference. In yeah. other words, eh, but, but yet there's something to this. I mean, how do you respond? How does that message get through to the way Christianity has become in, in our kind of Christendom worlds of the United mm-hmm. States and Canada?
0: Well, with difficulty and with patience, that's how it gets through. But mm-hmm. I do think we need to rediscover the wonder of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think uh, an imagination can certainly help that. Uh, The the Jews, as well as various parties within the Greco-Roman world, could simply not have imagined that God would come to the human race in that particular way. Um, they They would conceive of a Hercules or a Socrates or an Alexander the Great or an Augustus, but not the way God came as Jesus Christ into the world. It just breaks all categories. It did then, and I still think it does today, but I think there has to be a rediscovery of that, of the freshness and the power of that central message of how God came and how God saves humanity. And then what that implies in terms of how we live in the world, our way of being in the world needs to take cues from the way God chose to be in the world when he came to us. This must be music to the years of Anabaptists, by the way. <laughs>
2: We're about ready to break out in hymns, (laughs) four-part hymns right now. (laughs) Uh, Can we talk a little more about how Jesus was in the world? Um, You have a chapter here on identity and community. And I I think something that both Dave and I have run into as we pastor churches is uh, the focus on community becomes a pretty insulated focus on community what, um, what can we learn from the early church about how to be a community, but also how to be oriented towards the world with Jesus at the center?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And again, with difficulty and with patience. Um, first of all, it, it's pretty startling that when the Christian movement uh, got launched in the, uh, in the Mediterranean world. Um, they really approached identity in a way that had literally never been considered before. That your primary identity is defined by God's mercy, God's adoption as children of God. Uh, who I am in my most essential self as a Christian is a Christian, uh, a follower of Jesus, one who belongs to Jesus. Now, it didn't erase all other social categories. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still a husband. Uh, I'm still a father, I'm still a professor, Uh, I might belong to a political party, I'm an American, those things, but all those identities become secondary and relativized by my primary identity as a Christian. It's really interesting, in the early Christian period, when they brought Christians to trial, they simply asked them one question. I mean, this is inconceivable to us today. Are you a Christian? That was it. Are you a Christian? Hmm. And saying yes or no literally determined that person's future, whether they would live or whether they would die. And our identity has become so watered down now that just saying I'm a Christian is no longer efficient. You always have to add some uh, modifiers to that label. Anyway, so the first thing I'd say is we have to rediscover the power of an essential Christian identity, what it means to be rooted in, defined by and belong to. Jesus Christ. And that is going to change all my secondary identities. I may vote Democrat. I may vote Republican. I think at any given election, there's going to be reasonable, uh, a, a, a reasonable argument can be made either way. I think some better than uh, others. But my identity as a, uh, as an, uh, a party member becomes absolutely relativized and changed my, by. by by my primary identity as a follower of Jesus. That's the first thing I want to say. When it comes to community, unfortunately, in our cultural setting, um, the the church as architecture is a kind of symbol for what community has become. In the Greco-Roman world, there were no churches. There there was only the people of God. If a person said, if we said today to an ancient Christian, I'm going to church, that wouldn't have made sense to them they would have said, what what do you mean you're going to church? You you are the church. But we go to church, and we go to this building that's like a castle surrounded by a cement uh, um, moat, we we, we are constantly isolated. We live in homes, Uh, we go to the patio where we have our small group, we attend a church that's dead space in any neighborhood or community, in the ancient world, that community life was much more public. They couldn't hide like we can hide today. And so the house church or the community became a form of witness in the Greco-Roman world. Greco-Romans could see the obvious difference that it Mm. made to become a Christian and follow Jesus. Mm. So for example, uh, you run a stall in a marketplace, the Agora in the ancient world. And Um, it it, it becomes immediately obvious. You're married to one woman and you're monogamous. Mm -hmm. You don't have concubines. You're raising, you have three daughters and they're shocked that you've kept them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have any, you don't have any little gods and goddesses in your home. You follow a different rhythm. You Mm -hmm. treat people differently. Mm -hmm. Everything about your life bears witness to uh, Jesus Christ. Someone shows interest in you and says, "I, I, I'm kind of curious about what you believe. I've never heard about this before. You invite them to their home. You say a prayer before a meal. Mm -hmm. There's no little sacrifice you make to a god or a goddess. You pray in the name of Jesus. The way you conduct yourself at the meal is different. And that is what draws you into the life of the church eventually as a catechumen and then uh, after three years as a full church member.
1: Yes, yes. So community
0: was a form of witness, and I think it's less so in our setting today. The best we do is when we, quote, invite people to church. And that's our form of evangelism. Well, that wouldn't have made sense back then. And it's not. Invite people into a community. You don't invite them to church.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we all know inviting people to church is making less and less sense by the day. This is all. very inspiring and, uh, I don't know, um, reinforcing of a lot of things that we talk about a lot on the Theology on Mission podcast. Um, can I go back to this idea of a third way? Um, I think if there's one message, if we can get it down to one message here for this podcast for pastors, leaders, Christians, uh, listening today, it's this idea of a third way. And so often I find people in my own evangelical heritage going the defensive route, which uh, or actually you call the Jewish way or the isolation route from culture, defend, retreat, let's hold the fort kind of approach to Christianity. And then there's the Roman way you call it or accommodate align oneself with, gain access to power uh, and popularity and so forth. And you call the other the third way. I see in our culture today, and I, uh, Gerald, Jerry, I work within the area of political theory, not the history of Christianity. I'm always thinking about the way we frame things and get caught up in the same frame, but yet a God in Christ through the incarnation erupts, disrupts the frames of power and calls us to live under his lordship, his authority, his reign. I think this is the message of your book. Um, But this idea of a third way in the first couple of centuries, can you explore just the Roman way versus the Jewish way and how Christianity broke out of it into a third way?
0: Well, the first way was obviously the Greco-Roman way. It was a highly pluralistic society. People could access religion in lots of different ways. And uh, a pagan religion, that's what they called it back then, was um, a ubiquitous. You'd walk through any given city and there'd be temples and monuments and shrines and gods and goddesses in the homes. Um, Scholars say it was a transactional religion. It was not a, a personal religion. You kind of cut a deal with a god, you'd appease the gods and please the gods, and then you would be able to get something in return. So no one would say I have a personal relationship with Zeus or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Greco-Roman world was organized around those religions. It was a public religion. The people who, in charge of the religion were public officials. They weren't a special priest class, for example. But the thing that was most important is that the, by the second century, the, the, the person who embodied that particular Roman way of doing religion was the emperor himself. By the second century, emperor worship became more widespread, even when emperors w- were alive. Now, I'm not sure people took it all that seriously, but they did that because in the end, religion, Rome's religion was just Rome, the power and glory of Rome. Yeah, That was the first way. And they could absorb new religions. I mean, Rome was highly successful in soaking up all the various alternatives that would make their way into the Roman world. The one exception was Judaism. uh, Romans respected the Jews because it was an ancient faith and because it was highly moralistic. Uh, And they cut Jews a lot of slack. They wouldn't require them to uh, fight in the army, for example. They didn't require them to sacrifice to the emperor. But one of the ways that Rome could tolerate Judaism is because Judaism was relatively identifiable and isolated. They had to eat kosher. Uh, they had to live uh, in neighborhoods, they followed certain laws and rituals that that made them like an opposing team wearing jerseys. So you always knew who the Jews were, and that allowed Rome a little bit more control. Uh, Christians were simply different. Back to this this document written to Diognetus, Uh, the author says, you know, Christians speak the same language as everybody else, they eat the same food, they shop in the same markets, they They go to the same schools. I mean, they look like everybody else. And yet, in closer investigation, they're so different at the same time. They're different because of how they live in the world. Um, After he explains Christian behavior, then he goes in and explains what Christians believe that led to the different behavior. So I put it this way. They immerse themselves in the culture. But they were able to maintain their distinctiveness in light of their belief in God's incarnation, death and resurrection, in the distinctiveness of the Christian message. So they were, they were revolutionary without being seditionist. Uh, There were no marches on Rome, uh, no protests, uh, no political rallying. They were this quiet, kind of grassroots force that over a couple of centuries had an enormous impact on that culture.
1: Yeah, it's just amazing. Amazing. Uh, uh, you call this in but not of immersion of Christianity. And yeah, but it, it,
0: they were not just, uh, they, they were not in, they were above, they were over, uh, they permeated. It was like, um, it was like yeast yes. permeating the whole loaf of being in the Roman world. So when we use the word in, but not of, that's become kind of cl- clicheous. But, you know, they believed in the kingdom, Dave. And they believed in God's rule over all of reality, including planet Earth, including the Roman world. They called themselves the new commonwealth. Amen. Without, hey. without army, without borders, without languages, without traditional Roman institutions. And this is why it was such a menace to Rome. Rome was really nervous about this movement, even though on the surface of things, they seem to have no reason to be.
1: Have you, have you read, uh, I know you probably have, but Alan Kreider wrote this book, The Patient Ferment of the oh, Old yeah, Church. Right, Does that, that kind of reminds <laughs> me of some of the themes you're trying to say. And, and if I could just say, what correlates... Uh, So we're talking about the Roman way. Uh, What correlates to today? Uh, Mm -hmm. How are Christians accommodating themselves to the Roman way today? I mean, I have some few ideas, but maybe you have some.
0: Well, maybe I should ask you here, but I suppose you're interviewing me. So give me 30 seconds and then you can launch for the next 10 minutes. I'm sure much more insightfully than than I can. Well, obviously, um, uh, one is political. Uh, I think both the mainline church and the evangelical church, in general, there are lots of exceptions to this. Of course, have uh, of course have really compromised, uh, wanting political power at the sake. I think of faithfulness to the gospel. I think it's a, a very costly move, um, and it's a cautionary tale for all of us. That's one thing where one's identity is a political. Uh, in a political party is actually more important than one's identity as a follower of Jesus. I mean, the research has shown that churches are being divided because of their political affiliation. It's just incredible to me. I think race has played a role. I think wealth is a lot bigger deal than we think it is. And that's playing a pretty significant role in how it's shaping American Christianity. We're all Marcionites, Dave. I mean, we we, we, we want to we uproot Jesus out of the grand story of God's redemption for the yeah, world yeah. And, and replant Jesus into a cultural narrative. Mm. Capitalism, democracy, socialism, I don't care what it is. Um, and that tends to inform how we read the Gospels. Luke has a lot to say about wealth. We yeah. ignore it. And it, I think it's to our peril.
1: By the way, Jerry, all my friends call me Fitch. You can just call me
2: Fitch.
0: Okay. All right, (laughs) Fitch. (laughs) Well,
2: Jerry, do you have any examples of, instead of accommodating behaviors that the church does, do you have any examples of distinctive behaviors? Uh, Offensive. Well, uh, I love love your description of the early church and what Christians would do in the first century that kind of set them apart. Where do you see churches today setting themselves apart? Oh, yeah. well, it's the
0: it's the people in the church. It's not necessarily the church. Uh, I think there are a lot of little examples that have a cumulative effect that can have a great deal of impact on the culture. Oh, for example, uh, churches are moving toward, uh, uh, let's say, a more parish model. They're identifying a neighborhood. They're trying to read the neighborhood culturally. Uh, they're trying to fit in as best they can. Uh, I've, I, there are some churches meeting in elementary schools, so they can look at the, at the area of the elementary school as kind of their parish, showing up at farmer markets, other things like that. Uh, that would be an example. Another one is coaching. I coached soccer for 10 years, five for my younger son and five for my older son. What a great way to interface with a neighborhood. It's just coaching soccer, getting to know those people, having barbecues. That's another interface. Public schools are a fabulous uh, field for Christian witness and involvement. There are are so many genuine Christians who are teaching at public schools. This is why I felt such a vehement reaction against um, the uh, Benedict option and this kind of hopeless view of of culture. For one thing, I don't think he understands St. Benedict and the rule at all. But never mind that. But this abandonment of public education, because it's a lost cause when I know hundreds and hundreds of Christians in public school teaching. They need our support. That would be another example. I think small scale cultural impact, again, at farmers markets, other things like that. I think we have a lot of opportunities, but we have to think small instead of big. When we get impatient, We always want to have the big impact and make the big splash. And Christianity works best when it's quiet, when it's small scale, when it's grassroots, when it's organic for the most part. And that's what I would uh, advocate a return to, to that model.
1: Okay. Well, we got to wrap this up, but I got to ask you one more question. Uh, It's about coaching. Is it about what coaching? Well, he's soccer. I'm hockey. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, anyways, uh, Jerry, uh, are you an Anabaptist? Uh, no. Are I you sure yourself?
0: I, I I call myself uh, I I mean I'm a, a kind of a card carrying liturgical evangelical Reformed uh, Christian. But really, when it comes to heart, I'm simply anchored in what I call the great tradition of the historic Christian faith. I'm going to go back to Nazianzus and Gregory of Lissa. Lys- and uh, Augustine, and back to the second century, to the very roots of Christianity. Uh, that's that's the trunk, That uh, uh, that's the soil out of which all of us are growing. And I think w- we need to kind of uh, readjust our com- compass to that. So mm-hmm. around here at Whitworth, we talk about the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, and the Great Tradition.
1: Okay, well, I want to say this in the uh, most non-coercive, peaceful way I possibly can. You are an Anabaptist. <laughs> okay. Anyways. <laughs> uh, I, de, uh, Fitch, <laughs> I am a Christian. Amen. All right. We can all get behind that. Amen. Go I have an amen? <laughs> amen. amen? Amen. Mike Moore says amen. Uh, here's a final quote from a page 173, 74. The amazing impact of this faith, Jerry Sitzer says, throughout the Greco-Roman culture was not due to how Christians lived or how they formed people in the faith at least not primarily. Rather, it was concerned what Christians believed about the nature of reality and who they believed was the center of that reality, namely Jesus Christ. And to that, all of us Anabaptists and Jerry can say, amen. Amen. <laughs> so good to have you with us today. Amen to you. It's been delightful. Today. And I uh, hope we uh, see you along the way soon. And w- if we're nearby Whitworth, we will drop by.
0: And okay. We have Thanks an an- so much.
1: And we have an Anabaptist uh, piece of clothing for you when we do. <laughs> <laughs> Blessings to you and your ministry there. And uh, great to have you on. And for, for uh, till next time, Theology on Mission podcast, you want to say something about giving a good
0: review?
2: Yeah. Um, go ahead and uh, get on iTunes and give us a good review. But if you're going to do that, you should also go on Amazon and give Jerry's book a good review. Well, you should yes. probably purchase it first and then review And itself. we're going to have
1: that in the, in the notes. Yep. Uh, you'll be able to get a direct link to Jerry's book. Buy it. Give it a good review. This is a book worth reading, folks. Yes. The name of it is Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World. Until next time, it's Dave Fitch. Mike Moore. Over and out.